We're back! We're back! It's a distraction! I'm Drew! That's Rob! Hi, Rob! Hey, man. What's going on? I'm home. I am not I'm not recording in a, in a hotel room in San Francisco with very thin walls, so that's very... Now no one can hear what you're what you're saying. It can't be fun to stay in a nice hotel at, and then at eight in the morning hear like a, <laughs> a very loud doughy white guy screaming, We're back, we're back in the room. Calling next door. the front desk to be like, There's some geese yeah. in a room and they are upset. <laughs> it's like uh, it's like how Airbnb, like everyone got mad at Airbnb, like if you would like they would round Airbnb at Airbnb and then stage like porn shoots and like and like, like the next, the next thing beyond that is like they used my place to podcast. Oh my god! It horrible. reeked of podcast in here. We had to, we had to fumigate the whole thing. We had to. We have an actual guest this week. It's Adam Conover, host of the G Word on Netflix, and Adam ruins everything on HBO Max, and also the podcast Factually. Adam, how you doing? Welcome to the hey, show. Hey, thank you guys so much. I'm so thrilled to be here. I'm such a fan of the show and of the site. And uh, it's uh, wonderful to for you to have me. Thank you. Yeah, it's nice to have you here. Also, the one thing that Drew didn't mention, uh, Defector Contributor. Yes. Because he wrote a blog yes. for us like a couple weeks ago. It was really good. You know good. what? Thank I, you. I can't believe it. The one thing I didn't plug was our own goddamn site. <laughs> <laughs> as an admirer of the fine art of blogging and as a huge fan of Defector, the last blog on the internet, I was very happy to try my hand at the form and uh, and so a compliment from you means so much as an esteemed I, blogger such as yourself. I'm not going to gas you up too much because uh, we got a whole lot of podcasts left to do. Um, it was the same experience that we had. Um, every now and then we'll get a first time uh, blogger in there, and I'm sure you've you've written stuff before. It was like kind of uh, infuriatingly professional and good for somebody who doesn't <laughs> have to do this shit for a living. Like you got to pump the brakes on that one, man. Like we need you at about eighty percent of that. <laughs> Thank well, you, you know why? Because if um, Sometimes you'll get writers who have like writer brain and they're like, mm. oh, is, it, is this sentence okay? What about the next sentence? What about the next sentence after that? Oh, I don't know about this whole paragraph. What if the whole thing is shit? And like, you know, then you get other people <laughs> who are a bit fresher who aren't well, as conscious I'll, about all that I'll shit. I'll tell you, it did take me two to three weeks to write, which is if I was working for blog rates and that was my pace, I think I would starve. So I, I did. I did have a little bit of the amateur's advantage of getting to labor it over a little bit. But you know, the blog, the blog style is the only writing style I've ever particularly given a shit about. So I grew up reading it, and uh, it was so much fun. Try my hand at it, and I'll I'll probably pitch you again sometime. Yeah, and you've made a powerful new enemy in Frank McCourt, former owner of the Los Angeles Dodgers. <laughs> which is, yes, it's good. True. You need a everybody needs a nemesis. That's right, because you wrote about the LA Marathon for us. Is I that did. correct, Adam? That is correct. And the, the L.A. Marathon is in bad shape. Is that correct? The L.A. Marathon, uh, I described it as put a gun to their leg and uh, to their thigh and pulled the trigger. Like the they basically it, it was a fine civic event, but they needlessly uh, castrated their own course uh, <laughs> in order to save a little bit of money. Uh, the, the, the crux of the piece being that. Uh, Santa Monica. This it used to the marathon used to run from Dodger Stadium to Santa Monica, which is a, which was a wonderful course. The city of Santa Monica asked them for more money, so to save a little bit of money, they just turned half of the course into an out and back, and it had it end in a mall in Century City, which is yeah. uh, oh, well, it's kind of shitty. Which is like, you don't even terrible. need to understand anything about Los Angeles beyond that. Like if you keep going west, you get to the water. You don't need to know more than that to be like the idea of like, you're running to the ocean. It's amazing to then being like, no, you're running to the, like there's a, there's a five below. Uh, I believe there's, there's also a zoomies. So you just run to the zoomies. Just, and just yeah. do 60 do laps around the Beverly center and we'll call them there. <laughs> it sucks. Yeah. And it's just, it, it's just part and parcel of Los Angeles's, uh, lack of desire to be a real city, you know, that like with with the the ability to have a wonderful civic event in our grasp, we double back and say, nah, we don't really want to invest in that. Just like we don't want to invest in a public transit system, just like we don't want to invest in parks, just like we don't. You know what? We're fine with this fucking sucking, you know, yeah. and it's uh, it's a bummer. Couldn't be me. Eric Adams is my mayor, man. It's different here. That is <laughs> a very L.A. Built thing. Different where rare it's crystals, like, lots of dark. bracelets. Sorry, Drew. Go ahead. <laughs> no, no, no. You go. You make the Eric Adam jokes, and then we'll. And then no, we'll I'm, talk. I'm all set, man. That's about all I got on him. <laughs> that is honest. a very LA thing, though. Where you know, I think of it as one city, 
But it's really not. You go out there, and everything is 45 minutes away from everything else. Mm -hmm. And then if you say you want to go somewhere to a friend who lives there, they're like, you want <laughs> I got to drive to fucking Los Feliz? I don't want to go that far. Yeah. Ah! Like, yeah. like, like, as if you had to drive them to, like, Sacramento or some shit like that. Yeah, it's, I, I mean, the idea of even having a marathon, at the very least, the New York City Marathon, touches every single borough in New York. It's in the Bronx for, you know, 30 seconds, but at least yes. it touches every single borough. And the first thing you do is leave Staten Island in the New York City Marathon. That's the most New York <laughs> right. thing about the whole deal of it. Literally turn your back on Staten Island and yeah. just fucking go. Don't you, stop. <laughs> you start there, the first thing you do is cross the Verrazano Bridge, which is incredible. Um, but, uh, you know, at least it, it, there is, you know, uh, uh, the illusion of equity throughout the whole city. Los Angeles Marathon is impossible. You choose 26.2 miles, you're not covering. It's such a sprawling place. Um, that, you know, even this massive civic event is only happening in a tiny corner of it. But yes, it's extremely, extremely L.A. Have you ever run it? Run which? The L.A. Marathon? Yeah. Have you run any you marathon? That's what the piece is about. It's okay yeah, that you man. didn't read it. <laughs> uh, so I don't want to spoil it, Drew. He, he, did, he did run the marathon. All right, all right. Adam's never coming on the podcast again. <laughs> <laughs> the New York one was... Like, I mean, that's one that I don't know if it's the same in Los Angeles. It's one of my favorite days. I've never lived more than like a couple blocks from the New York Marathon course. Yeah. Like in the whole time, you know, 20 odd years that I've been here. And I used to live near the beginning of it on Fourth Avenue, which was great because it's no one's dropped out by then. No one's even really tired. Like, and there's mm -hmm. people that are running it in costumes. I remember high-fiving a man that was dressed as just... He was wearing a sort of a foam Halloween costume as a pair of, of balls with, like, just <laughs> testicle balls. And I guess it was to raise awareness for either for just balls in general or for <laughs> testicular cancer or something. Oh, yeah, it's got to be but a he ball But he didn't thing. finish, but he was still going at 4th Avenue and 21st Street. Yeah. I remember I, mean, I used to, um, like, go to the Upper West Side and, like, like where they would finish on the Upper West yeah. And, like, you would have brunch and watch them finish and stuff like that, which is, like, a very, like, bougie New York thing to do. Like, oh, <laughs> let me have my eggs Benedict and my eggs Florentine and watch someone who just ran 26 miles wrap themselves in fucking tin yeah. foil. There's a lot of that. So the neighborhood I live in now on the east part of the Upper East Side, there's a lot. It's, like, mile 18 or 19. So people are starting to get tired. And there's a lot of, like, a big culture of people showing up to either cheer for their friends or just cheer in general. Uh, like, a bunch of bands that only exist for one day a year get yeah. out and play like honky tonk woman really badly for everybody that's running by. It's oh, really, man. but it's heartwarming. It's kind of nice. It's great. And mile 18 is death. That's when you really are starting to feel like total shit. And yeah, you get off that stupid bridge. Yeah. Things. I was going to ask oh, you God. what the worst mile was in a marathon, Adam, but I could kind of guess. Well, the worst mile of the LA marathon is the, as I write is like the last mile of it because it is, you know, they doubled it back on this hilly part of the course that has no uh, trees. Um, you've been like slogging along, watching people walk, run the opposite direction from you for like six uh, miles. Oh. Um, and then the last mile of it is on a hill. And they did this baffling thing where I was like running the last mile. I can't see the finish line off in the distance. I'm like, where is it? I'm not going to make my time. I, I need to pee. I'm so tired. Where's the finish line? I don't see it. And then finally, everyone makes a right turn, and they had hidden the finish line behind a 90-degree right turn. You make a right turn, and the finish line's right there. And I was like, they denied us the sight of the finish line in That's the horrible. last mile. So you're slogging up a hill, and you're like, is this ever going to end? It's like you're in complete desperation, and then you make a right turn, you finish, they hand you a medal, and you're in a mall. <laughs> yeah. Can't beat it. What Go an straight honor. from the finish line to freaking Baja Fresh. Right, yeah. Here's Can't a coupon to fucking Del Taco. Congratulations. <laughs> it literally was. It literally was. Um, but at the same time, what I try to represent is it like, Marathons are such inspiring events. They're events. They're events where so many people transcend themselves simultaneously and have that experience. And I had that experience too, despite it being in these dispiriting circumstances. That like, you know, I think that's sort of emblematic of a lot of sports in general is the uh, the grandeur and glory and human spirit amid the squalor of capitalism. You know? Yeah, that's like the whole story of the Olympics. Is it's like yeah. You know what? Every every year or every instance of it, you get whatever three years and ten months of just being like the most disgusting 
rich guy bullshit imaginable. Mm-hmm. But then like someone starts doing gymnastics and you're like, that is sick. That's really cool that you can do that. <laughs> but Mira yeah. interesting. sucks. You shouldn't be that easily redirected, but I am. But like, Mira yeah, sure. interesting because they really are um, it's an extraordinary thing to run a marathon, and yet something that many, many people do and many, many more can do. I will not, but like you could. And I think it, in that sense, it is a unique athletic achievement in that regard. Because like I couldn't hit a home run in a major league baseball game. Mm-hmm. That would just, I couldn't hit the fucking ball. That just would never happen. Yeah. But you know, I could in theory run a marathon. Again, I yes. will not. <laughs> but like you that could. Is a, but that is a rather that's a rather stunning thing that people are able to do it. Yes, and that's why I initially did it, and I sort of, I read about this a little bit, that I was in a bad place when I first ran it. In my life, in my 20s, I was really unhealthy, and I, I just, nothing was going right for me, and I wanted to, like, sort of amaze myself and all my friends. And that's something that all of us have access to, that, like, you know, you can, to run a marathon, all you really have to do is show up and run it over and over again, you know, like do the training regimen. First you run 10 miles, then you run 12, then you run 14. You know, you just expand, expand, expand. And you can do it. You might walk a lot of the way. You might run really slowly. They might have even, they might even be rolling up the finish line by the time you get there. But like, you can do it and you can say, I ran a marathon and everyone you know will be like, I could never do that. Oh my God, (laughs) you're incredible. And that's, yeah, (laughs) what other things actually have that you know, where else does that, that exist in American life? Almost nowhere. Did, did it live up to your hopes for it after you completed it? Did it feel like a turning point in your young life at the moment? In, in my young life, it absolutely did because it, it was like a... Uh, right after that, I started approaching comedy the same way. I started doing... I started really focusing on showing up to do stand-up and other forms of comedy. And I, I sort of... It, it increased my... Uh, awareness of what I could do. Like, I took the lessons of running a marathon really directly. I feel like as such a dad. Like, it builds character. But, like, I really did <laughs> take those lessons and apply them to other parts of my life. Um, and then the thing that was really transcending about the the marathon that I ran this year, though, was that in uh, 2011 when I ran it, I ran it in five hours and 58 minutes, which is very slow. Um, but I was proud of myself for finishing this time for running so slow (laughs) (laughs) this time, 10 years later, I was, it was the 10 year anniversary of me running it the first time 10 years ago. Um, I beat my old time by four minutes. Um, to me, I was like, I'm now in my late thirties and I beat my, my younger self by four minutes. I can't believe that I was able to do that, you know? And, and so it, it gave me a new, I don't know, a new, a new set of lessons and a new spirit to like bring forward to the next decade of my life. Um, and, and yeah, Frank McCourt can't take that away from me. Yeah. <laughs> Think about what all the things that Frank McCourt has succeeded in taking from the people of Los Angeles, but he cannot take your personal record away from you. He did, he did take a lot of parking revenues away from the favorite local baseball team. But you know what, Adam? While, we're ta- while we have you talking sports, we may as well continue talking sports for a moment because I know you're a fan of the Dodgers. I am. And of... Um, I believe of one of the LA MLS teams, or is it both? Uh, uh, LAFC, I am. A fan okay. Of, correct. Now, knowing knowing all of that, knowing that you ran the LA Marathon, uh, I ask you, who will win the NBA Finals? Oh my gosh, I have no opinion. I've honestly have not been following this year. I, I, how embarrassing to come out of the vector podcast. Do you know who's in it? It is. Uh, it is Boston and the Warriors, correct? That's right. Yes, of course. There, but there you go. There you go. If Phew. you had to flip a coin and decide, and you can actually, you can literally flip a coin and do it. Who would you think? I, w- going I to would win? have to say. I would have to say the Warriors. I feel like uh, just if looking at the not having followed the teams that closely, but but knowing history, uh, that would be the team that I would bet on. That's good, because there, there actually was a wrong answer to that question, so I'm glad you've got the right answer. Yeah, I mean, I think even just all you do need to know, I did watch a lot of the games, and, like, that's pretty much it. Like, you're right. If you knew that the Celtics had played, like, the equivalent of five or six more games than the Warriors over the course of the postseason, that would also probably inform your decision. Mm-hmm. Drew, are you expecting five games? I, Fewer? You know, I would say that the Warriors are set up to, to win it all, but there's a couple of things. One, I was watching the Heat... Celtic series, and anytime I looked away from the screen, Miami did well. And anytime I looked up, Boston flourished, um, which made me very angry. Um, so <laughs> I, I don't, I feel like I am an accidental good luck charm for the Celtics. So I don't like picking against them or really thinking about them in general. Uh, the other thing is that, you know, I can say that they're gassed because they just play two seven game series while the Warriors, you know, are relatively rested by comparison. However, 
the final schedule, the finals go into like fucking October. So like <laughs> there's going to be plenty of time for some of the more uh, depleted Celtics to, you know, to get their rest. And they're a really fucking good team. So I am not, I am not terribly confident that the Warriors can sweep. I hope they win in like a game and a half. I hope the first game is 300 to nothing. And they're like, you know what? We have to mercy rule these finals. We, yep. just, we can't. <laughs> the Celtics are now, we've become a lacrosse team. Yeah. So everybody's gonna... Now, uh, Adam, uh, your show, the G word on Netflix, it's kind of about how it's about the, the federal government and how it works. Correct. And the things, uh, the everyday functions of government that you don't really think about and perhaps maybe take for granted. So now you're an expert in the invisible hand of government, how mm. can that hand be deployed to make sure that Boston does not win the NBA Finals? <laughs> <laughs> really sharp left turn at the end there, Drew. Kudos. I, I was getting this is a sports set, up to, set up to give the elevator pitch for the show, but this is actually a lot better. I mean, uh, man, I don't know. I think, uh, I think sports should be a, a, a public institution. Let's nationalize the leagues, and then we can control, we can put it to a vote, which team is most hated and make sure that they, that they do not, that they never win. Uh, Cause that's what the people really want. We can equally Sadie. distribute victories. You know what? Wouldn't that be nice? Well, wait, wait, I know you're sort of like half joking, but what if we actually did nationalize yeah. sports leagues? Would that be good? Would that work? I think so. I mean, yes, I'm joking and I'm not joking. But when you look at something I think about is, you know, when you look at the way that folks in England talk about their local teams, that they're, you know, public and they talk about them as being semi-public, you know, as being, uh, you know, community, important community centers, you know, oh, it was started by a couple of builders who got together and wanted to, oh, yeah, (laughs) like all that kind of thing. It's like, yeah, the, why not have this be like a public library or anything, or anything else? You know, have have the have the basic expenses be funded uh, publicly, and you know, find find some ways for capitalism to work. What capitalism work is magic as well. But you know, the the degree to which, if you look at how much public money is already sunk into sports in the form of you know giveaways when owners want to cr- construct stadiums and things like that, it's like clear that there's a public need for these teams, right? So why are we letting you know the Frank McCourts of the world? Run them like Frank McCourt when he was fucking with the Dodgers wasn't just a problem for MLB wasn't just a problem for the Dodgers it sucked for like all of Los Angeles I didn't live here yeah. at the time but it was like you know like I'm sure the mayor was pissed off about it <laughs> yeah he was the most embarrassing man in the community that probably has the highest density of extremely embarrassing men anywhere in the United States <laughs> but like even by the standards of sports owners like this is something I wrote about this at the old site about because the Mets you know I I don't need to belabor my issues with the Mets. Everybody knows. I'm also a Mets was. fan, by the way. I tend to become a fan of wherever I move to, but um, I, I was a Mets fan in New York, and uh, I honestly wish I still could be. Um, good man. I mean, I, well, they're good. They'll see the Dodgers, I think. I've decided the Mets are good. You are, we can you talk are the about first person to say, I wish I could still be a Mets fan. They're so lovable, like, and I love the broadcast team, and I love the colors, and you know, I just I, I can't be a fan when I'm not there. I don't have it in me to be the expat fan. I, I have to like go root for the home team. Anyway, I'm sorry. Yeah. I, I interrupted you. No, no, it makes sense. The, so the reason I was writing about McCourt, the reason I had, like bothered to sort of figure it out was I was trying to figure out if there were any sort of like precedent or like just any way that the MLB infrastructure could remove an owner that was so bad that they had become like not just embarrassing, but a competitive issue in the league. Mm-hmm. And that was what they did with McCourt. It was the only owner that really was like forced to sell by MLB. Like going back to I guess like Charlie O'Finley was more or less pushed out of Oakland, but Oh yeah. But this was that's a generation earlier. And for McCourt it was some of it was that he was very obviously like stripping the team for parts and like enriching himself and all that. But there was also this issue where, you know, in the same way that I think it was borderline that case with the Wilpons before they sold we're like, it's important that the National League team in one of America's two biggest cities not be like an open sore. Yeah. And that's what he did with them. Like it was really like beyond like the the money element, which he was definitely trying to extract as much as he could. Like he made the team impossible to see. He made them unpleasant to think about. Like that's, yeah. that's and, a, you know, and a crime Dodgers, against the people of Los Angeles. The Dodgers are for better or for worse, one of the only civic institutions in Los Angeles, full stop. Like, yeah. one of the only right. things that everybody cares about, everybody loves. 
that is, you know, a uh, <laughs> you know a representative of the city to people. I read last year an incredible book by Eric Nussbaum called Stealing Home about the, we love it. Great the book. incredible baseball book um, about the, the Dodgers moving to Los Angeles and, and how, you know, entire neighborhoods in Elysian Park were decimated as a result. Um, but like it, one of the things that book really impresses upon you is like at the same time as the coming of the Dodgers, like forced so many, you know, Latino communities out of their homes, literally, uh, evicted them. It was so important to so many people in Los Angeles that, that the Dodgers came and it would like, you know, gave a center to this centerless city. Um, and so for somebody to fuck with that, right. Just some rich dude who wants to like extract money out of it. Like he is currently doing with the Los Angeles marathon. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, is is bad and like you know I mean uh, the Los Angeles Marathon another good example so important that they ran it all three years during COVID like that's how important it seemed to be to uh, the city why is it being run by a billionaire's personal foundation rather than the city itself like yeah. if it's that important um, I, I think these are things that we could consider yeah the when something is a public good this is one of the themes of the show um, of the show the G word out now on Netflix. Uh, when something is a public good, only the public can actually safeguard it and invest in it. Um, you can't leave it to private hands. And we talk about all these shocking examples on the show where that's true. Things like uh, weather predictions all come from the National Weather Service, which we invest in on a massive scale. Your your tax dollars are currently paying for like 100 different weather observation posts to have meteorologists sit in them to watch the weather and generate weather reports that everybody else uses. Everybody, AccuWeather, the local news, they all use it. There's no other way to do that. No private business would or ever could do that, nor could they fly planes through hurricanes, which is something I go and do on the show. Um, the GPS system, you know, was uh, established by the federal government. Like when things are public goods, that's how we need to invest in them. And yeah. I think that sports are a public good. And so that's a conversation that we should have. I'm glad that you actually were able to tie that in. I guess this is why they gave you a TV show on Netflix streaming now. Because I was in my head kind of like very slowly, like, you know, the Homer Simpson, like a donkey sleeping with flies buzzing around its butt. That's the cognitive process. But I was seeing that that's kind of a recurring theme in the show is that, you know, the, the thing that the public makes mm -hmm. and then this, you know, in the case of the, the weather one, I mean, it's like literally represented by like a guy who looks like the head of AccuWeather mm -hmm. coming in and like just monetizing isn't even the word for it. I mean, just like basically walling off all of this stuff that should be public yep. for profit. I mean, you mentioned this in the in the weather episode, especially, which we can go back to talking about you flying through the storm because there's. Some beautiful footage in there, but also uh, some really beautiful footage of you looking extremely green during that as well. <laughs> Just a lovely, pale, curvy yeah. green. Uh, the That idea of AccuWeather having like tornado warnings available only to premium subscribers and yeah. stuff like that, it is like, I mean, I know it's true that that exists. I don't think that I had appreciated somehow that I, like, gloomy Gus of this podcast, had not appreciated how dystopian that element of it had yeah. become. Were you, I mean, I know you had to do a lot of, the, you know, research and stuff getting into it, and obviously you've, your politics are a matter of public record, so you people know what you believe. Were you surprised to find just how much of this had been kind of, like, already repackaged and sold uh, stuff that should be public by private entities. You know, I, I expected the narrative. I expected that to see that pattern. Um, uh, you know, I had read uh, the story of AccuWeather attempting essentially to privatize the National Weather Service. Or actually, it's even worse than privatizing. What they want to do is, what they've been trying to do for decades, is to take the public service of the National Weather Service and make it beholden only to them. So they're the only ones who get the data that our tax dollars are paying for, and then they can resell it to us. That's what AccuWeather's trying to do. Currently, you can go to, uh, you know, uh, weather.gov, and you can see the, you know, weather report that the government meteorologists are making, which is the most accurate weather report you could get, and everyone, and everyone else can get it too, all the news stations, all the newspapers, um, and AccuWeather, they all use that data. AccuWeather has been lobbying to prevent the weather service from sharing that data with you so that you have to go through AccuWeather and pay them for the privilege of getting the data you've already paid for. Well, also, so, Trump, 
Trump appointed an AccuWeather dude to head up he, the NOAA, He correct? attempted to. He attempted to. He attempted to appoint Barry Myers, who's the CEO of AccuWeather, as the head of NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Association, or Administration, um, which is the parent, parent uh, agency of, of the National Weather Service. He was never confirmed because it uh, maybe <laughs> enough senators thought it was too egregious of a conflict of interest, shockingly. But Barry Myers has been agitating to get himself appointed for decades. Um, and, you know, he prevented the National Weather Service from, de from developing a public app by, uh, you know, he was like seated on some kind of oversight board um, for the National Weather Service at the time. So he was able to kill that program. Um, he's just been, you know, uh, try, you know, he's, he's been a pig suckling at the public teat for a long time. And the problem again is not that he's doing it, it's that he's trying to crowd out everybody else. He's trying to get all those teats just for himself. Um, I knew that story before we made the show, um, because it's covered in the Michael Lewis book, the fifth risk on, on which the show is loosely based. Um, but I, so I expected us to find more stories like that. I wasn't aware of a lot of the specific ones that we talk about. For instance, I wasn't aware that the GPS system is run entirely by the federal government. Um, and, you know, that every app that is uses GPS, Uber, Tinder, you know, all of them are using a public service that the government provides everybody in the world for free. And like, that's a story that we've never told, you know. It's not bad that they're using it. That's literally what it's there for. But... We have not, like, told each other the story that, like, hey, did you know that, like, our government using our money over 50 years, like, revolutionized transportation, like, more than the compass? Were you aware of yeah. this? Um, it's If anything, we get wild. told the opposite of that story, too, which is the idea mm -hmm. that basically being, like, there's no way that the government could do what Uber does. Like, look at this. Like, they know the little dot. That's you. You're in that car. Yeah. Like, you think you think the feds could manage that? Like, it's just... They literally do. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, that is the story. We say, oh, the government, the government's inefficient. The government can never do this or that. When in fact, like the, you know, the companies, the tech companies that are making so much money are piggybacking a on other people's technological innovations, like the internet, which was also created by the government, quite literally. Um, or they are doing it by like suppressing wages um, or finding some other, uh, you know, other trick to be able to make a lot of money very quickly. Um, it's generally not because they invented anything because they don't have the money or the long-term thinking to invest in something for 50 years. You know, that isn't that corporations used to do in America. You know, companies like GE and IBM used to be big and long-term thinkers enough that they would invest in technology over decades. And now none of them do because they're only thinking about next quarter. Um, and so the amount of innovation happening in, in uh, the private sector is like a lot less than we're led to believe. Is that true or or <laughs> am I full of shit? I could. No, be. no, 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 Without, no, I, I believe you. But then also I've I've been sort of hoodwinked by enough like 60 minute segments about uh, GM trying to get into hydrogen powered cars or mm -hmm. Apple wanting to make a car and things like that, that I, I keep. I think I keep thinking in my head that a lot of these companies do have a grand plan. But well, then again, ha Apple hasn't made any – every year Apple introduces just an iPhone with like a slightly better camera. Right. Here's what they do, and this is what I think is starting to come into view. Um, companies like Tesla, Uber, a lot of them, Facebook – uh, will FanDuel will, fan will tell you that they have a big plan. And the reason they do that is because stock price is based on future potential. And so they will, you know, what they have all been trying to do is uh, convince the market that they are going to disrupt everything by bringing out some amazing thing in five years. But all they really have to do is convincingly give the impression that they're going to do that. So Uber for like five years was coasting on the idea that they would one day have robot AI cars. And they were telling everybody that they would have robot AI cars. And in reality, their robot AI car like program was always bullshit. It always sucked. They eventually dumped it. Um, but they were you know, reaping the rewards of giving everyone the impression that that's what they were going to do. Um, and so a lot of times the innovation these companies are doing is like purposeful vaporware. Uh, uh, the perfect example of this is Facebook's metaverse. I mean, you know, Facebook under massive investigation all around the world, one of the least popular companies on the planet now, they're hemorrhaging users. What do they do? They tell everybody, oh, there's a new technology that we're inventing and that's going to be a new universe that we dominate and control. 
but they don't ever have to actually come out with it. The only point was to deflect right now and prop up their stock price right now. And luckily for all of us, everyone looked at their concept video and was like, this looks like ass anyway. Why would anybody <laughs> want to do this? Like even Wall Street was like, this fucking sucks, Mark. We don't know why you think anyone would want to play ping pong with a virtual avatar of you. <laughs> yeah, it's incredible. Well, it's also, it, I loved that story and wrote a bunch about it. And it's it, there's something kind of like touching about how crystalline an expression of like the limits of that type of tech imagination it was that you know Zuckerberg emerging from his brain cave on the power of like hundreds of billions of dollars and being like you can go to a meeting in your computer now like and you can look like a bear there if you want to look like a like a teddy bear or anything like that uh, that's possible now and like just seeing how much it sucked really like told you everything that you needed to know about how they got themselves, how they sucked themselves yeah. into the position that they were in. And, uh, and if I could, take, oh, oh sorry, I'm go. sorry. Well, uh, we have to take a quick break. We'll be right back with Adam Conover of the G Word. We'll be right back. We uh, we are back with Adam Conover of the G Word on uh, on Netflix. Uh, by the way, your show, Adam, uh, was executive produced by the Obamas. It was. Uh, how how did how did they find you or how did you find them well, like, the which Obamas the are we talking pitch. about here the ones that were president <laughs> yeah the president one no no oh. the the uh irish ones the obamas yeah was oh say. my god it's an old chris Somebody Matthews mckenna's in a band yeah with. dave mckenna's yep. best friends the obamas <laughs> um we found each other i mean I've, as you'll see on the show uh myself and the former president uh, have a somewhat of a testy relationship because you know, so the the show came about because the Obama's production company optioned the Michael Lewis book, The Fifth Risk, which I had read. They wanted to turn it into a TV show, and they were like, "How?" And I pitched them, "I will do it." You know, using my brand of comedy investigation, etc. Um, but I made it really clear I had to have like basically editorial independence from them because the show couldn't be seen to be like advancing the Obama agenda. And so we have a number of segments that are like critical of the Obama administration in a number of ways. We do an interview on the show, which is like a little bit tense at times. Um, but, uh, you know, he uh, they sort of gave me the space to do my thing once they uh, I was able to convince them of my like good faith effort to represent the world as I see it and not, you know, be be uh, cheap or political about it in, in any uh, annoying ways. Um, but it was it was pretty. Uh, Pretty fascinating to make the show with them. Well, Can I ask a question that please. Dan McQuaid would want me to ask? I think because we were discussing it. <laughs> the office that President Obama is in, in the very first scene mm -hmm. of the episode. Yes. Is that the same office that Ted Danson had in The Good Place? Because it looks exactly the same. He, 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 he emailed me about this. All and right, good. Oh, did he? He, good. Did, <laughs> he did email me about this. And it is not. It And I, oh, and I know that for a, a fact because we shot that in Barack Obama's actual office. His, oh, wow. His real office on a, you know, a, a middle floor of an anonymous uh, office building in D.C., which is has his like office compound in it. Um, right. And I'm relatively sure they didn't shoot the good place in Barack Obama's actual okay. office. Dan had completely well, talked me know, into it. I guess it's better. It makes more sense that that would be the case. But like, however, I did tell Dan that we shot a bunch of the outdoor scenes at the Dis it's called the Disney Ranch. It's a back lot in L.A. Uh, that where a lot of town scenes are shot in. And I wouldn't be surprised if the good place was shot on that very lot. I have not okay. verified whether or not it is. You did say um, that you wanted to go through a lot of the stuff on the show without getting too annoyingly political about it. But, like, at times, shouldn't you be? Like, particularly oh, right now? Absolutely. But I was in the context of what the Obamas would have been worried I was going to do, you know, which was be cheaply political, right? Or just go, like, eh, Trump's orange. Like, that's yeah. what... The, oh, that's, well, that's what they yeah, were worried no about. But yes, uh, no, po I mean, look, politics is policy, is everything. So there's no avoiding that. And we do, in fact, talk about, for instance, um, we do an episode on disease on, you know, how the government fucked up COVID-19. And then more importantly, what's ailing our system of government overall. And one of the things we talk about is the neoliberal turn, as it's sometimes called, where Americans began to lose faith in government. And we had, you know, our entire political system sort of start to attack the government as being wasteful, as being, you know, this bloated corpse that needed to be dismantled. And uh, that is a story of politics, right? That's that's the story of Reagan, uh, primarily 
primarily, uh, but also all the politicians who followed in his wake that, you know, we're still living in the Reagan revolution. Um, so those are stories that we tell, but they're not like, you know, we're not doing like MSNBC shit. You know, we're, we're talking about like, you know, a, a deeper form of, of politics, hopefully. Yeah, MSNBC doesn't even like do the blaming thing right, which I can't believe because it's like it shouldn't be that hard to be like, hey, Mitch McConnell is a bag of shit. Like, that's all you got to say. Like, that's not that fucking. And they won't. They can't do it right. They fuck it up. I I know it mostly because I get the version of it that's sort of filtered through my parents. But it's striking how much of that is still like, as Adam was saying, that like we're still in this kind of like not just like the Democrats being on their heels, because that's been true for my entire life. But the way in which all of this is framed as if the Republicans are the main characters of American politics and culture. So that like so yeah. much of the way that this gets talked about, and you can see this, I think, with, with Biden, while we're talking about people with limited imaginations, there is like <sighs> still his idea of being like, you know, that Mitch McConnell will come to his senses. So he much called him a rational dad, Republican after a right, fucking so massacre. Fuck that him. my father comes to me with from, that is clearly from MSNBC is like, can Mitt Romney not be persuaded to do the right thing? And it's like, <laughs> the answer is no, dude. The answer's always been no. And yet there's still that aspect of it that like, it, this is the part of it that I think is like really interesting about what you're, you're sort of trying to do in the show. It's not just a question of like restoring some dignity to the idea of a public thing, but just like accepting that this is in fact yours and that mm-hmm. like you do have a right to something more than what you get every day falling off the tables of the people above you. Like it, that part of it stinks. And it's such that defeated approach to it to me feels like somehow, like, I mean, it's not worse than all the exploitation, but there is like more, that's the insult that follows the injury. Yeah, absolutely. Me. And, and, you know, as much as we're trying to talk about, the ways that, you know, capitalism uh, corrupts what our government does, the way they try to, you know, uh, uh, turn these public goods to their benefit, the way that, uh, you know, the capitalism and the politicians who, who feed off of it have tried to dismantle the government. We're also trying to tell stories of like times that we as a society, society via our government put in place massive interventions that massively improved our lives. Like stuff that, you know, some of my favorite segments we talk about are, you know, people used to just die of eating tainted meat. And then Teddy Roosevelt says, let's send meat inspectors into every single factory in the country. They have to be there all day long. The factory cannot run if they are not there and they can stop the line at any moment. And if you were to try to propose that today, you would be told that's un-American, how dare you? But in, in reality, we did it, right? And that's the only reason meat is clean. Um, the, the FDIC has the power to take over any bank. They independently, they are funded by the banks. The banks pay into an insurance fund. Then the FDIC is monitoring the finances of any bank. And then if the bank is about to fail, they come in in the dead of night and take it over. Um, and we tag along with them as they do this uh, in one of my favorite segments. I watched that episode. It's the one that has James Austin Johnson in it. I kept yes. waiting for him to break into a Trump. Oh, oh a lot of people. <laughs> we got him right before he went to SNL. In fact, he had to leave. So did we. Yeah, he came on the podcast. We could not. We're out of his price range. Incredible. No, he he actually had to leave uh, set one early one day. He was like, "Can you shoot me out by four p.m.? I got to go audition for SNL." And we were like, "James, you're my friend. Yes, you will shoot you out in time." So I'm a little <laughs> bit of, of that story of how he ended up on that show. Um, but yeah, we're just trying to remind people like, yes, this is yours. And if we do things together, you know, and do something as extreme as give, making a federal agency that's able to take over any bank right before it fails. So no one loses their money. Right. That sounds extreme. But if we do it, it fucking works like we we can do this. So that's what we're trying to bring back a little bit with the spirit of the show. We uh, we actually we, we have a defector accomplice who's going to join us and Adam for Guy of the Week and for the fun bag. But before we do that, Adam, are you familiar with the Jock Peterson Tommy Pham scandal? And if not, could we explain it to you very briefly? I have heard about it. I've read about it here and there, but I would love to hear your explanation because then I will be fully caught up. Roth, give him the lowdown. All right, so the short story uh, version of it, it's continuing to get longer. 
Uh, you remember Jock Peterson as a Dodger, probably, before he restyled himself as looking like, as uh, Craig Goldstein once said, a, a British rapper named Manzi. He's like a big, <laughs> he's a big necklace and sweatsuit guy now, but it's a, it's a different approach. Uh, he was in a fantasy football league that was, we learned earlier today, that Mike Trout was the commissioner of. It was a $10,000 buy-in. It was all MLB guys in it. And... Uh, Peterson and Tommy Pham had a dispute in there involving uh, whether he was stashing the 49ers gadget back Jeff Wilson on his IR uh, slot in a um, in an unseemly fashion. The reason that anybody knows about this is that apparently Peterson uh, made a compelling case that he was not doing anything wrong, later shared some rude memes about the Padres, which Pham played for last year. And then last week, Pham, who is now on a different team, uh, ran up to Peterson, who is also now on a different team, in the outfield during batting practice, and slapped him. <laughs> it was a big slap, too. It was, it was a, a Rick James slap. slap. It was like... It was like a like an AEW, if not WWE-grade slap. <laughs> and then afterwards was like saying a bunch of real Tommy Fam shit about how he's like, he did a bunch of things that I can't condone. Like, when you start fucking with my money, then that's how you, that's how you get slapped during batting practice at the Great American Ballpark, and it was <laughs> such a... So, whatever, it's a perfect dumb guy story, especially because Peterson has been extremely forthright about all of it. Like, he's been showing reporters, like, the group chat. He's like, this is the meme I sent, like, the guy that poops. I just had put the label Padres over that, so he knew that that was his team I was making fun of. Anyway, so that that is the... I For my money, not just the story of the summer, but probably the story of the year, I hope that we can get go like that it's got another month's worth of legs on it. Like, once Mike Trout comments, maybe there's some more stuff. I'd like to know who else was in the league. I'd like to see the draft results, honestly, and see what Tommy Pham's approach was to building a team. I mean, this is the hottest league in sports now. Yeah. I mean, Jock clearly violated uh, the unwritten rules of fantasy face football, of fantasy football in baseball. So, you know. Yep. Of which <laughs> there are many. Uh, <laughs> let's remember a guy, but to do that, we're going to bring in Defector accomplice, Sri. Hi, Sri. How are you? I'm doing great. How are you guys? Good. Thanks for uh, thanks for being patient. Uh, I had some really important thoughts I needed to finish there about Jock Peterson's personal styling. Uh, so <laughs> thanks thanks for that. Uh, Sri, would <laughs> no you like problem. to remember a guy with us and with Adam Conover? Sure, I'll remember a guy. Now, the, in honor of Adam, I had to pick a Dodger. So your oh. guy of the week, it's Brett Butler. Do you remember that guy, Sri? Ooh, vaguely. Yeah, it's a bit old. Might be a bit before mm -hmm. your time. Adam, do you? He was a Met, but I feel like you maybe are young enough that you don't remember. I am, I am too young. He played before I began following baseball at all. He also, he was an Indian, or back when they were called the Indians. He was mm. a guardian. Uh, I remember him specifically because... When I was a kid, leaving through the newspapers and like through the box scores, I would always remember the first person in the lineup of the box score. Yeah, and I would always see B. Butler a lot. And then I saw him in real life, and he didn't look like the comedian at all, which was no. very disappointing. No grace on the fire. I was confused when you said Brett Butler. I was right. like the comic. Yeah, the comic. So like the weird, the weird comic. You mean the right. non-toxic Paul, Roseanne? Paul Poundstone. Yeah, right. <laughs> non-toxic, <laughs> so, slightly alcoholic. Yeah. yeah, I was going to say, like, the less toxic version of Roseanne. Like, this is kind of, we've got Roseanne at home. Uh, <laughs> but he, Brett Butler was a very good ball player. Uh, yeah. Like, he, was, he was a Met at the end of his, back during the, uh, the first real round of the Mets investing heavily in, uh, they're taking a long position on 37-year-old free agents. This is a, a thing that they would continue all through the Wilpon years. Yeah, some things never go out of style. Well, they were just like a hospice care facility for baseball players. Like, you could just get like a dignified last 50 at-bats of your career as like Brian Daubach or Trot Nixon or whoever you just come in. They give you the uniform. You get to hang out. It's like a thousand people yelling at you at every game. Butler was like had – it was all speed. I mean, there wasn't really a lot of else to his game, as I recall. And by the time he was with the Mets, he wasn't even really that fast anymore. But he's a Met for life. You know, what? we salute him, whatever, whatever. We have now <laughs> remembered him. Uh, Sri and Adam, this is from Isaac. This is a fun bad question. Isaac writes in, is there anything more nerve-wracking than driving behind a fully loaded car carrier? I'd like to consider myself a fairly <laughs> rational person 
who knows those cars aren't going anywhere. But I'll be damned if I spend even a second more than I have to <laughs> behind one of those things. Terrifying. Sri, are you okay driving behind a car carrier, or do you have to get the fuck away from that thing as fast as you can? It's. I have to get away from it, but I think uh, the lumber truck is the only thing more terrifying. Yeah! Same mm. for me. That's all Lethal Weapon 2. Yeah. Yeah. No, Lethal Weapon 2 is a surfboard, but it's like any movie where someone gets yeah. mushed by a log. All, that tends like to instant stick Final in Destination vibes when there's a log, yeah, a log yeah, truck yeah. in front of me. I think I think the car carrier is a little bit more of a Michael Bay kind of thing where you, you feel they're going to start rolling out and you're going to have to jump from car to car as they're rolling yep. off to get on top. Uh, I'm quite sure it literally is a Michael Bay thing. Like I think he used it in like Bad Boys Two. He better have. And like eight yeah. of the Transformers movies. Like. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, why? I mean, what's a Transformers movie if if one of them is an incognito on one of those car carriers? Can't yeah. find Ooh, them. Oh yeah, you know, no. Finally, somebody who is willing to approach the character of Bumblebee with all the appropriate. <laughs> one might say that robot was in disguise. <laughs> That's enough, Drew. Huh? That's quite enough. Thank you. Thank you very well much. Uh, this is from Hugus. He writes in, why are some teams, why are some bad teams considered lovable losers and others not? Like how the Maple Leafs are a lovable, lovable loser, but the Lions are just bad. The Cubs were once lovable losers. That title didn't pass on to the Pirates. The Pirates just remained a bad team. Apologies if this has already been covered. Three, do you feel like some shitty teams do get uh, sort of crowned lovable losers while others don't i think it has to do with the combination of the obnoxiousness of the fan base and perhaps mm. if they've had prior success and now they're going through a tough period like the leafs okay yeah all right i think we're yeah, more willing think... to forgive them if we know it's kind of a, an up and down yeah that was the thing with the cubs i think that they and you know red sox to a certain extent too were like if nobody alive remembers the last time your team won a world series like you get grandfathered into lovability, even if you're like literally Red Sox fans, you know, that like people are just sort of like, well, I'd like to see it happen for them. And then as soon as it happens, you're like, no, not like this. But there is, there is like that aspect of it. Well, also perhaps um, it's a function of which players are on the teams. Like if the team itself has some lovable players, like mm -hmm. I kind of consider like the Barry Sanders lions quite lovable because of Barry Sanders, you know what I mean? Yeah. So, I Oh, go ahead, Adam. I think that lovability and losing are are somewhat separate as qualities, and I think that it it lovable loserdom uh, happens when both of those qualities coincide. You know, I, we've yep. been talking about the Mets a lot. The Mets have many lovable qualities. First of all, they've been in the city for so long that people have actually grown up with the Mets, um, despite being the number two team. Uh, but then they also have a lot of just sort of sweet, dopey attributes. I mean, Mr. Met is very lovable, also clearly yep. a loser, you know? The <laughs> what, because his head's too big? I, I think it looks nice. <laughs> I love any I love any Mr. Met joke. Like the, when Conan O'Brien had him like committing suicide and stuff. I, he's I, I he's it's such a one. funny such a funny character that the apple coming out of the top hat. It's like, why? Okay. <laughs> it's like not that great of a celebration, but we, I love the apple coming out of the top hat, you know, what, whatever the, the colors, the, the blue and orange are like not cool colors. They're kind of like, weird dopey colors in my opinion it's literally the same colors as the new york city housing authority it's not a strong <laughs> brand in the city it's like they don't look they don't look awesome or sleek they look like oh yeah those are yeah i like those guys sure and then also they lose so you yeah. know those two things coming together but then there are other teams that have like burned their entire bridge with uh, the, the, like, you know, I, again, I'm a transplant to Los Angeles, but when people explain to me how they feel about the Clippers here, that like, there is no positive feeling among Los Angeles sports fans. They built no love in the community. So when they lose, people are just like, fuck them. And when they win, people are, most people are still like, fuck them. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. So I adopted the Clippers when I went to school out there because I'm an idiot. And <laughs> also because I couldn't bear to cheer for the Lakers. It felt fake you know like it would be presumptuous i guess you know that I was coming west as a new jersey nets fan and i just like walked into the beginning of like the sort of kobe shack mm -hmm. dynasty and the idea of me being like yeah that's me now like i'm i'm one of those guys like i'm you know shack like i'm basically the shack of my own life wrong like absolutely false and fake and i, I so i had to choose the clips because i'm a masochist and because i whatever imposter syndrome whatever other diagnosis you want to have on that and they weren't lovable, 
they weren't lovable because of Donald Sterling and because of how poorly run and how creepily run the organization was. And I think that's like the thing that unlocks the rest of this. It's not like the Pirates don't have or haven't had likable players. It's that they, they're owned by a very, very cynical billionaire yeah. who has been running the team as a sort of a, you know, profit extraction gambit for, you know, a decade. But you, you can... And it sucks. You can imagine an alternate world so easily where the Pirates are lovable losers. I mean, yeah. who doesn't... Lo- Pittsburgh, wonderful city. Uh, great colors, great ballpark. Great like, colors. There's all kinds of stuff there. Okay, historic, but fuck the Steelers, though. Team. Mm. That's fair. That's <laughs> I really I really killed it right there. Just, no, yeah. I think, Drew, well, people thought maybe you had more to add than fuck the Steelers, <laughs> like, but, but I maybe just, there's not more to say. Like putting on Slayer karaoke night. Just absolutely <laughs> stop the room fucking dead. Uh, this is the email of the week. Sri, I'm going to let you answer this one. This is from Jack. When's the last time you took a bath? Uh, I'm 6'4", and let me tell you, I simply don't fit in a tub very comfortably. As fun as I remember bass being when I was a kid, disappeared instantly the last one. Uh, last time I took one. Sri, do you remember the last time you took a bath? I am 6'2", and I will not fit in the bath in my house. Nor but uh, about a month ago, I was in Vegas, and they upgraded me to a suite with a soaking tub. And oh! It was nice. palpably yeah. luxurious. Was it Was it in the shape of a champagne glass? <laughs> it was just kind of a big kind of like fish thing. It was actually a little weird. Oh. That said, if if someone is going to go to the trouble of putting you in a room with a soaking tub, you got it would be rude if you didn't take a bath. Like if you were like leaving, they were like, "Did you did you bathe?" I had, you would have to lie to them. You know, I had that. I went to I went to Montana in February, and I went skiing, and I was staying in a condo that it didn't have a hot tub, but it had a bath with the water jets. You know, you push the button and the water jets go on. So I was like, "Fuck it, let me do it," and I smoked a huge fatty and got in the bath and it was <laughs> fucking great and i was like well yeah. i'm not beating this no more tubs after i'm i have won the tub championship and i'm not going back adam when's the last time you took a bath oh my god i don't take that many baths because i feel like i don't get comfortable in a bathtub and the water is always i get too hot too quick and then i feel guilty for letting all the water run. again i live in drought droughted california um, but, uh, I think the last time I took one, I was visiting my parents in Eugene, Oregon and my dad who has a bit of a bad back recently, they got a hot tub and that hot tub is the savior of his life. He, he hot tubs himself every single day. And that is, that, that is the last time I can remember actually take, does it count as a bath? Does a hot tub count as a bath? I guess you're not really washing yourself. That's a good question. Yeah. You know what? If you, if the tub has jets, even if it's an individual tub, it's kind of not a bath. Like, I always yeah. think of, like, I think I've watched too many rom-coms where, like, the heroine is sitting in a tub, and she's surrounded by candles, and she's, like, reading a book. And I could never, like, I would get, I would destroy the book within five seconds. There's no way I could possibly do that. Oh, that so. is the fun part of being in a bathtub, though, is is reading a book. Uh, here's the trick. You got to get a paperback. You don't care about getting a little wet. That's your bath book. Yep. Ooh. Oh. Or the you know, or the racing form in a cigar. If you want the Walt, that, they call that the Walter Math. Oh, uh, oh, I could do that. Racing form would be yeah. a bit more fun. <laughs> Adam Conover, you have been a fantastic guest. His show is the G Word on Netflix, and also Adam ruins everything is on HBO Max. And his podcast that's called Factually. You can get that wherever podcasts are sold. Yes. Brandon Nix and Chantel Holder are our producers. Nora Ritchie is our executive producer. Our theme song is by Kirk Hamilton. And listen to ad-free episodes of The Distraction only on Stitcher Premium. And thanks to Roth and me, you can get a free month of Stitcher Premium right now. Just go to stitcherpremium.com and use the promo code DISTRACT. And don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe wherever it is that you listen. And please, go subscribe to Defector.com, too, while you're at. Also, the new season of Normal Gossip is out. That's also available wherever podcasts are, so go listen to that, too, while you're at. Adam Conover, thank you for coming on. Sri, thank you for joining us toward the end of the podcast. I, I hope you had a nice time. My pleasure. Thank you. All Thanks, right, everybody. we'll talk to you all next week. Goodbye, everybody. Bye. Goodbye. Goodbye.